Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. These are the prison epistles. Uh, Father, we come into this room, we acknowledge with with lots of baggage, uh, with distractions, with fears, with frustrations. God, we come in, um, some of us just broken and clinging to life. And so we pray right now, God, that you would that you would meet with us. God, that as we, as we seek to dive into your word, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would inspire us. God, that you would peel the scales off of our eyes so that we can see you anew. This morning, I pray, that the, uh, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was uh, a little kid, uh, my parents went away one weekend for uh, sort of a, a little weekend away together. And when they came back, they brought us some little traditional souvenirs. And so uh, I remember I got this boomerang thing. Uh, and uh, no, word, no word of a lie, uh, I, I, the very first time I took this thing and, and I just I heaved everything I had into it and I threw it in. And sure enough, it starts flying out and, and I watch it begin to curve and, and, and then it disappears onto the roof of my school, never to be seen again. Um, uh, my sister got this this uh, fancy little velvet bag that had the semi-precious stones in them. Maybe you've seen them at at the classic gift stores, the you know the jade and the amethyst, and and these things are polished and they're shiny. And uh, she she thought they were great. Uh, I mean, she's not really the brightest bulb in the box, but she thought they were great. Uh, I know, right? I'm that kind of a brother. Um, love you, sis. Uh, but uh, but also uh, my neighbor, my neighbor Damien. Uh, Damien thought they were just great as well. And so he actually, and, and keep in mind, he was like seven. Uh, he went into his driveway and he grabbed these, 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 this handful of driveway gravel. And, and, and he, he grabbed a can of gold spray paint and he spray painted them gold. And he convinced my little sister that these were actual gold nuggets and traded the driveway gravel for these gems, these, these little stones that my parents had bought her. She thought she was ripping them off, right? I just got gold nuggets. Uh, and my parents let it happen, I think, just because they, they wanted her to learn this lesson. Uh, but as I think back on that story, I think it's just such a powerful, such a powerful illustration of, I think, what we often do with the gift of grace that God has given us, the life that he offers us, and he gives it, puts it in our hand, and we so often want to exchange it. It's almost like, we rush to exchange it for the garbage of the world, the false gold of the world, the, the, the instant immediate gratification, the, the, the desires of the flesh, as Paul would say. And, and, and it's like we desire to exchange these things. Um, Paul here is writing in Philippians. And so in the dailies, we've been working verse by verse through this. And we're going to sort of parachute into Philippians here. Paul is writing from prison to a church that he loves. And again, just as in Galatia and Colossae, these other towns, these other churches, there are the, these false teachers coming in and they're presenting something different. They're trying to tell the Philippian church, you know what, Jesus isn't enough. And in fact, you're not really good enough for Jesus. It, it, you need other things to go in addition to Jesus. And so uh, the, these teachers are coming in and, and they're saying that you need circumcision in addition to Jesus. You need to maintain the, the food laws in addition to Jesus. No lobster for you. Uh, you need to maintain the Sabbath and, and the, the washing and the purity and the cleansing. And you need all these laws in addition to Jesus. And really 
what they were offering was religion. The, these Judaizers, as they were known in the day, were offering religion. What you, you don't need just Jesus. Jesus, no, you can't do that. You need religion. And religion is essentially what we do to earn favor with God. What Paul is saying, ironically from prison, he's saying, no, that, that Christ has come to set us free and that, that don't be bound by the chains of religion, but rather embrace Jesus and him alone. Um, and so perhaps if you're new to church this morning, first of all, welcome here. And, and maybe you're surprised to hear me talking negatively about religion. But that's not what we're doing here. Religion isn't the point. Uh, I had a buddy um, when I first started coming to faith who, who would call me his, his religious buddy. And I just cringed because that's not what it was about. So we're going to pick up the text in Philippians chapter 3. Um, Paul is, is wanting to sort of to push back on, on this false teaching of, of religion. And he's saying, listen, you think these people who are breaking in and trying to, to stray you away from just Jesus, you think they look impressive. You know, they're driving in in their nice cars and they're wearing fancy suits and it looks like their lives are all together and their kids are in line. You think they look good. Let me tell you my resume. And so here is Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul is about to explain, sort of unroll his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's saying, uh, I, my parents did it right for me. That, that my parents were pure-blooded. That uh, they knew exactly what to do. That, that from my birth, everything was done the right way. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that is uh, an important tribe in, in the history of Israel. That was King Saul's tribe. And in fact, Paul originally was named after King Saul. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He speaks the right language. He is the right uh, nationality. As to the law of Pharisee, he was, he was a zealot. He was diligent in, in, in obeying the law and, and having the right theology, he thought. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was passionate. He wasn't sitting on the sideline. He wasn't riding the fence. He was in, out in front championing this. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He dedicated his life to doing things the right way. And, and what Paul wants to do here is actually do a little accounting. He's setting up a balance sheet. His resume, and these, you know, apart from, you know, the persecuting of the church bit, they're not bad in and of themselves, but he's saying, this is who I was, and these were the things that my identity was placed in. These were the things that I took pride in that set me apart. This list would be like saying, um, I'm Harvard-educated, uh, a Harvard-educated Kennedy with, with land in Manhattan, right? Life, life is, is laid out for me. It's smooth sailing. But he says, as I look at the balance sheet, I list all of these things on one side. Then he draws a line, and he's going to look at the other side of the page. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
So he's got all of these things that he's accomplished, the blamelessness under the law, all of his work, all of his education, all of his heritage, all of his family. On one side, on the other side, he puts Jesus. And he says, compared to Jesus, Jesus alone, everything else here is rubbish. Now, the, the original Greek word there, uh, in some of the Dutch translations, the old Dutch translations, uh, they don't really pull any punches. Uh, and they, they maybe have the most accurate uh, translation. I won't say it here in this room. Uh, by context, you can understand it means garbage, rubbish, dung, excrement, filth. Actually, that's the word that Paul uses. He's saying all this—it's actually just in the Bible. I won't say it, but you Dutch farmers know what I'm talking about. Um, he, he says all of these good things in my life, all these accomplishments, all of my religious duties, and I was the best. Compared to Jesus in this balance sheet, it is dung. And so, I want to take a few minutes here this morning talking about what is it about Jesus? What is the surpassing greatness of Jesus? Because I think if we're all honest, at least for me, if I'm honest, when I think about Jesus, this is the image that usually just pops in my head. Right? Am I wrong? When I think of Jesus, it's like, I mean, look at his, look at his hair. That's some Fabio hair and like perfect complexion. And if we're being honest, just a little too white. But this isn't Jesus. This was, you know, this was, was an artist rendering in 1940 that has shaped our sort of understanding, at least the mental picture we have of Jesus. You can take it down. But when we're really talking about Jesus... We're not talking about that guy. In John 1, 1, we're told that in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and everything that was created was created through the word. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God, the logos. He is uh, part of the Trinity. We have Father God the Son, God the Spirit. He's the second member of the Trinity who is the creator of all things. And so as we're talking about Jesus, it's not just bearded, long-haired Jesus. We're talking about the creator of the universe who made all things. And one of the amazing things about science, and, and I love, my wife is a science teacher and this is what she lives in, but, but the more you, you look at science, the more you see the complexity and the beauty and the intricacy of what Jesus has made. And we don't worship creation, but it's like his fingerprints showing us his beauty, his complexity, his intricacy, his magnitude, his glory. And, you know, uh, astronomy has seen that the universe is expanding. And if we, if we reverse time, we see that there was a point in time of singularity when all matter and all energy, everything existed in one tiny little speck. And it lines up with what we have in Genesis 1 where God, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. Ex nihilio, out of nothing, God created everything. So we have this Jesus. Jesus, who is the creator of everything. And so as we're talking about the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, it's not just straightened hair Jesus with like beard cream. We're talking about the creator of the galaxy. This Jesus. Um, I, on the daily on Friday, I talked about how I like to go out in the woods and just sort of experience and open my eyes and try and see his creation and see the blessing that he's given us. And I mean, there isn't, he didn't have to give us colors. He's done that to try and draw us to himself so that we know him. And it reminds me of a time we were in, uh, in Guatemala on our first trip to Akul. 
And we're sitting on this rooftop, having just been with the people of a cool, uh, we're sitting on a rooftop in Antigua, which is this beautiful colonial town, cobblestone streets. And we're, we're just about to have dinner. We're praying for dinner. And I decide I'm, I'm not going to close my eyes while we're praying because there's this lightning storm going on off to the left. And you can see these bolts of lightning just across the sky over this volcano. And it's amazing to see the city and the mountains. And then as we're praying, uh, out uh, El Fuego, this volcano that's off in the distance, it actually shoots lava. As we're praying, there's this pillar, this column of like reddish-orange lava in the air. It's way off. But it's this amazing picture of God the creator and also God the sustainer who's trying to draw us to himself through creation. This is the Jesus that we're talking about. Also, Jesus, who is the hero of history. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, we have what's known as the Proto-Evangelion, the very first gospel, where Adam and Eve messed this whole thing up for us. And God makes a promise to Eve, and he says, someday one of your descendants, one of your seed will crush the head of our enemy, the serpent. And as he crushes the head of the serpent, his heel will be bruised, which is in the very beginning a prophecy setting the stage for Jesus who crushes the head of our enemy on the cross while he himself is bruised. And so we have the Old Testament all the way through leading up to Jesus. Jesus is the hero of history. And Jesus is the answer to the philosophical questions in our lives. This is the Jesus who the surpassing greatness of knowing him makes everything else look like rubbish. That we know in Jesus who we are. Who we are as people made in the image of God. That we are not an accident. That we have a creator. We know where we are. We are on a, the, the, this good earth that God has made. But we have broken it in our sin. And we live in the midst of this curse. We know the problem. The problem is that, that we have been separated from the source of life because of the sin. We have these inner longings that, that are unmet and unfulfilled. And these desires that we simply just can't get satisfaction for. But we also know the solution is Jesus himself. The God of the universe who once again wants to draw us back to himself like it was in the Garden of Eden. This Jesus who surpasses all understanding came in flesh. I mean, that's the image we, we try and see, but, but Jesus in flesh is the exception to who he is. We have Jesus, God the Son, who is cosmic in the beginning. Jesus, in the end, uncreated, eternal, enters into creation, into the flesh. And, and there's this amazing hymn in Philippians 2 that Jesus, even though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but instead humbled himself even to the point of the cross in order to serve and love us. So as we look at Jesus, as we look at you know, the Christmas incarnation, as we look at Easter and the crucifixion, it's the, ex the, the exception to who Jesus is. It shows us his humility and the full extent of his love, the surpassing greatness of Jesus. Um, and there's two words, and I've said them before, and I'll say them again, because I just, I think, for me, they, they raise my thoughts skyward, and they expound my view of who this Jesus is, that, that we're told is so much better than everything else that we could claim our identity in. And, and the first word is propitiation, right? Which means the satisfaction of wrath, that Jesus himself comes onto earth in flesh to go to the cross because our sin deserves God's wrath. We don't shrug it away. We don't ignore it. God cares. 
it's an abomination to him. But rather than, than, than pouring his wrath out on us, Jesus takes the wrath of God on the cross in our behalf, in our place, so that it's not poured out on us. Jesus takes the wrath of God for my sin, the surpassing greatness of knowing that Jesus. But Jesus is also the expiation. Expiation is the removal of shame and guilt. And, and it comes out of the Old Testament, where the priests would take this goat, and they would lay their hands on this goat. And they would transfer all of the shame and the guilt of the people onto that goat. And then they would send it off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. It's where we get the term scapegoat. Jesus is our expiation. He is our scapegoat. He doesn't just sort of pay for the weight of our sin, but then hold it over us and still is disgusted by us and doesn't want us to forget it. Instead, Jesus is hung naked on the cross. Jesus is nailed, publicly mocked, scorned, berated on a Roman cross to take the shame and the guilt of our mistakes, of our sin, the weight of all of that on himself so that it is as far as the east is from the west. Jesus is our propitiation and he is our expiation. The surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And it's not just a past tense deal. But rather in the present, in the moment, in this room. Maybe you've never been to church before. And the, the, the reality is that the God of the universe who's created everything. Who went to the cross to pay for our mistakes. Has called you into this room because he's trying to draw you to himself. Because he wants to know you. And hopefully if you have a conversation with anyone who calls themselves a Christian, hopefully this is the truest thing that you hear, that it's about walking with God in the moment, that it's about relationship, that it's Christ who dwells within us daily, that we are never alone, that we are never outside of his plan, that God works all things together in our lives for good and for his glory. That this Jesus is present with us today, that we are not alone, that we are not an accident, and he's here in this room working in our lives. We trust his providence and our insecurities. We lean on our adoption because he's done this for us. The surpassing greatness of knowing this Jesus. And then Paul continues about what that means. We don't earn it, right? We don't now have to, to put all of these things in our lives, all these rules and regulations so that we can earn it. This is what he says coming out of that. In Philippians 3, chapter 9, and be found in him, that in him, not in ourselves, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. We don't count on our own goodness. Now we count on Jesus's. And so following him is about becoming like him, about walking and following him into righteousness and holiness that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That's about calling us into mission, that we now have a purpose, that we become ambassadors of this message, of this, this, of this Jesus. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. About the hope for the future. That death is not the end. That there is hope beyond the grave and there is a purpose for our lives and our hope lies in eternity. Again, we come back to Paul saying, please, don't lean on your own religion, right? Because the thing about religion is we can create our own lists. These are the things that I think are important to God. And so if I keep these things, which I've created, then God owes me. 
And then we show up to God with our list saying, look, Jesus, at my resume, I did the things that are important. But do we really know that they're the things that are important to God? Instead of relying on that, we need to rely simply and solely on Jesus and that being relationship. And that was actually a turning point in my life. Growing up in the church, I thought it was a religion. I thought God was taking attendance on a Sunday and we needed to be there or God was going to be choked. Right? And there were certain things. There were certain things like couldn't get drunk. Right? You weren't supposed to smoke. I mean, I guess for some people in my family, that was optional too. But, uh, you know, you, you, you weren't supposed to have an affair, pornography. You know, there were certain lists of things. And you just, as long as you didn't do those things, then everything else was fair game. That's religion. And, and um, I sometimes think of it like this. Like, we look at religion like I'm sitting on a stool in an empty room. And I, I'm thinking about all the things that I'm not doing right now. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not looking at pornography. I'm not stealing. I'm not lying. I'm not angry. And we, 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 we look at all the lists. Look at all the things that I'm not doing. Boy, aren't I living. Is this it? Like, I think functionally, this is how we often view our faith. I'm not doing the things I'm not supposed to do. Gee, isn't this great. I think that's religion. And I think why so many people reject it and run away. And why it looks so darn unappealing to the world. Because it's kind of lame. Instead, what Paul says is, no, it's about an active relationship of knowing Christ Jesus, the God of the universe, not just bearded dude, who quite frankly feels really weird singing songs to about actually knowing him, we put our feet down on the ground every morning and we go, Jesus, what have you got for me today? It's all yours. And it's, it's terrifying. That's it, is we can't control it. We can control religion, but we can't control is a relationship. The king of the universe, but in the danger and in the fear and in, in that uncertainty, there's actually life. As I come back again to... Um, the driveway rocks. As I was thinking about it this week, actually, I came to look at it in a new way even. That we look at the spray-painted gravel. And honestly, in all of my good works, in everything I've tried to do that was good, in everything I've tried to do that was holy, in all of the, my checklist, in all of my church attendance, in all of my worship, all of it on its own is simply just spray-painted gravel. It's worthless. But Jesus comes down and he knocks it away. And in its place, he doesn't just put jade and amethyst, cubic zirconia. He puts diamonds and rubies and emeralds and sapphires. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's propitiation and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. That there's this exchange where he takes our brokenness on himself and gives us his life. And so this, our showing up here, what we do with our faith, it's not about religion. 
It's not about a checklist. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about appeasing God or earning anything. This should be, and as well, everything that we do should be about Jesus, about celebrating the victory that we have in him, about worshiping his glory, about offering him praise, about declaring the sufficiency of him in our lives. That everything else that I had, that I, that, that I put my identity in, that I'm proud of, compare, yeah, maybe they're good things. And every sermon I've ever preached in my attempt to try and bring him glory compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, it's all scubbola. It's the Greek word. And so, uh, the invitation this morning is if you don't know this Jesus, if you're on the periphery looking at this religion, it's not about good works it's not about a checklist. It's not about going through the motions. It's about knowing Jesus, the God of the universe, not bearded dude, but the creator of the universe who one day is coming back again, who sits on the throne, the king who came to the cross so that he could know us. And if you've been coming to church your whole life, again, it's to look at your balance sheet and know that, yeah, there's maybe some good things. And we can be excited about the good things in our lives and the things we're trying to do and God is calling us to. But our true identity and hope rests solely on the other side, which is the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you. that we would just stand in awe of you and that everything else would fade in comparison and that we wouldn't try and control you or manipulate, but rather, God, that we would just experience this relationship that you're calling us into kingdom life and that we would follow you into life abundant, that we not trust in our own lists or rules, but the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus would be the theme of our lives. Open our eyes to see you. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, my attempt was simply to try and raise our eyes up to Jesus in whatever way I could in a short amount of time that I had. I will never be able to do him justice. But my prayer for you as you go this week is that we would seek to see his face and that all of us, as we experience him in our lives, in creation, in the word, relationally in prayer, as we walk with him and experience his love in our lives, that we all would be able to declare with Paul, I consider everything else in my life rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, period. Blessings on you as you go this week. Um, each week when we, when we, or each month when we do communion, uh, we do take an offering for the Lord's pantry. These, these, uh, these are needs in our community directly. And so as you go, there'll be some baskets. Anything you put in the basket will go directly to, to meeting uh, needs in our valley. Um, let me pray as we go. Jesus, we ask that you would um, be the source of our hope and our joy. Thank you that it doesn't rely on our goodness, but on yours. Thank you, Jesus, for this great exchange where you've taken our brokenness, our sin, and you've given us life and freedom. And God, I pray that we would live our lives in response, joyful, gleeful response to who you are and what you've done. Make us people who live in freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings on you this week.